that kind of boldness, proclaiming who you are in us. May we be unshaken in our faith, unwavering in what we believe, knowing confidently who we are in you. We thank you and praise you, God, in your name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, my friends. Um, There's this old adage that you never preach to the people that aren't there. You only talk to the people that are. So let me first off say, you guys win. You're the winners because you showed up. When I first moved to Seattle the first time 20-some years ago, um, and we lived up in Kirkland, I was on staff at a large church, and we would have a weekly golf outing on Mondays. They would meet, and some weeks it would be 12 of us, some weeks there'd be like 16, 18 of us, and it was raining one day, and I called and I said, are we still going? And I'd only lived here a couple of months, and it was still summer, and they said, if we didn't do things in the rain, we'd never do anything. And I was like, okay, all right, I can do that, I just need to know the rules. So I grew up similarly in the snow. Now, when I tell you we had years where the snowfall, over the course of the winter, not at one time, would be over six feet. We'd have 72 inches of snow. That wasn't uncommon. My parents average where they live now. They average about 40 to 44 inches. But there are years where, obviously, there's years where they get none or very little. So there's years where it comes more. So I grew up in snow. So when people are like, are we having something? I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit of snow. Give yourself an extra 15 minutes so that you can shovel out whoever gets stuck on their way and let's go. Um, if you're wondering if... I'm serious about that. Yeah, I have in the back of my car, I reminded my son, throw in the extra gloves, boots, and hat. There's a snow shovel. There's some salt. We'll move whoever's in our way off to the side, and we continue on. Um, But I do want to thank Dylan and Tracy for coming down yesterday and shoveling and making it possible so we could get in. Thanks also to, to Joe and Justin. They came this morning and cleared this back path so that People could hopefully find a sidewalk coming in the back entrance. And uh, as a church, I love it when we come together and and we make things happen. The worship team comes out early, and I just love the fact that it matters. What we do here matters. I, I always say what's most important is that we gather together because that's the example that you have of the early churches. It's a group of people who gather together. And that's what we are. We are the church, whether there's two or three, or today, what do we have, probably 40 in this room, or normally where we have 160, 170 with all our kids and everything. It doesn't matter the size. It matters that we gather together. And so thank you for taking time today to come and gather and be the church, to love and encourage one another. Uh, You know, I hope you'll stick around for a few minutes afterwards and grab a snack because... That time is important for us to build relationship and build community. If you've got your Bible, I'm going to let you know we're in Judges. Um, Judges is an Old Testament book, so it's towards the front of the Bible. It's um, technically it's the what? It's the seventh book of the Bible, and um, we're going to cover the book of Judges over the next about six weeks. One of those weeks, I will be in Russia, um, going and visiting one of the missions people that we partner with, and uh, James will be speaking that week, and I don't know what he'll pull out of Judges, but it'll be up to him, but the rest of the time, I'm going to kind of cover the highlights of Judges, and here's why. Someone was talking to me, and this was a while back, but they were talking to me about, um, they didn't like reading the Old Testament, they were, it was 
talking about reading through the Bible in a year, and it was a year ago, it was over a year ago, reading through the Bible in a year, and they hated that part with the Old Testament. They loved the New Testament and wanted to just read the New Testament. I said, well, you know, I think the New Testament's great. I love the Gospels, but we get in trouble if we only take any one portion of Scripture because it's written to help us understand who God was, what he did, and what he's yet to do. It's, it's a story. It's an arc. It's like taking your favorite book, whatever that is, maybe your favorite book's A Tale of Two Cities, taking one chapter out of the middle and then going, well, this story makes no sense. We, we can't do that with anything. There's, there's a story. There's, there's something from the very beginning. And again, this wasn't a criticism of this person. I understood exactly what they were saying. Any of you ever get to like, you want to read through the Bible in a year, and then you get to like Leviticus and Numbers and go, well, that's it for this year? Okay, so I'm not the only one. So you get to Judges, and people think Judges is all about being judged. It's all about the harshness. The truth is, when you look at it just slightly different, it's really about the beauty and the grace of who God is. And a lot of churches want to condemn people for what they're not doing, or condemn people for what they've done, condemn people for their past, for their addiction, for their inability. I was at a thing just last year, and somebody condemned people that were struggling with depression and needed to get the demon out. And I thought, how? How in our modern era are you still saying that? If somebody has cancer, we don't look at them and say, get the cancer out, you're wrong. No, we go through, you see an oncologist, you go on a series of medications, you follow maybe a specialized diet, you follow a chemotherapy or a radiation treatment plan. We do these things. But if somebody has depression, there must be... No, it's no different to have something that is not right in us chemically or emotionally that causes that. And we live in a broken world, so how are we supposed to not be broken people? And I'm here to tell you, God is not angry. The book of Judges is not about God's wrath. It's about God's redemption. It's about his promise of what's to come. So let me give you a little history. First off, you've got to understand, with any of the books where they can't attribute authorship, there's speculation. I try not to speculate. We don't know who the author is. What we do know is the most likely person, and this is according to the theologians who study this, the most likely person is, at least for a portion of it, is Samuel. And it's Uh, That's the common conservative theological approach to who wrote Judges is Samuel. You may recognize that name from the book of Samuel about his life. We know that Samuel's a writer. In 1 Samuel 10, it tells us that he's a writer and that he kept track of what was going on in the temple. So there's a good chance that he wanted also Israel to understand their history. The author used both oral and written histories to construct this book. So it's somebody who knows the stories. Here's why I tell you all that. If you don't know the story and where you came from, if you don't understand that there was something before you, it becomes really easy to get lost in the fact that we have it right and the rest of the church and the rest of history had it wrong. It's really easy to believe that You know, I know that there are denominations still being born today, which is fine, and there are new churches being planted, which excites me. But when somebody tells you they finally got it figured out, that they have the right theology, that somebody's starting a new chain of churches, or they call them satellites or whatever, that's fine, that's great, I want people to hear. But when they believe that they need to do that because nobody else is getting it right, that's trouble. This history existed for thousands of years, and they have told the story of who God is through these stories. And they didn't do that because 
they wanted to seem important, they did that because they want their children and their grandchildren and the next generation to know. The reason we have this story is so that we can understand that God was working in people long before we ever existed. Long before we knew what we knew. Long before we were the expert theologians that we are today. Long before we were this country and this nation who was founded on godly principles that oftentimes believes were the only one that ever was. There's this history. The second thing we learn from this is it covers a period from the death of Joshua until the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. Significant in this sense. We know that it was written after the monarchy began because in chapter 17 it references the period before Israel had a king. So unless the writer was prophetic and knew that a king was coming, it's obviously written after the monarchy is established. But why that's important is this. We have this period where Israel leaves Egypt and they follow Moses, their leader, and he takes them up to the precipice of entering the promised land and he dies. And Joshua... One of the ones who was with him for a long time, remember Joshua, when they send the 12 spies into Israel 40 years before they're wandering, Joshua's one of those people and says, let's go and take it. He's one of two that believes that they're supposed to go in. The others say no, they are afraid, so they don't go in. So now, 40 years later, Joshua was a young man. 40 years later, he's not a young man anymore. And now he's leading Israel. So they follow Joshua's leadership. They go into the promised land. They take and secure what God has promised them. And now Joshua dies, and they're without a leader. And they don't know what to do. Because from the time they left with Moses till now, they've always had a leader. And suddenly, their leader's dead. And so we get a story, a series of stories, of who's going to take over. It's significant Because when you don't have a leader, people scatter, and people don't know who to follow, and people don't know what to do. And if you don't believe me, look at any corporation or organization. Coca-Cola was one of the most powerful organizations in the world. Some of you know I study Coke, and I study Coke's history, and I love the beverage, and I love the, the story. And when their leader died, their CEO died unexpectedly. He was still a young man. He was not even 60 years old yet when he died. And when he died, and this was just a few years back, You'd think, oh, it's a giant corporation, they'll have no problem. Their stock dropped over 30% within two months. Why? People were still going to the stores, and there was still Coca-Cola on the shelf, and you could still walk in and buy one and walk out. There was never a shortage, there was never a strike, there was never a lack of, but there was a fear of what was coming next. Without a leader, people don't know what's coming next. And financial experts said, Who's going to lead? Who's going to step up? And what direction are they going to take them? And the reality is, there was never a day that you couldn't buy a Coca-Cola. But fear does an incredible thing in people's minds. Fear does this thing that drives me to go, what do I need to do? What's going to happen? What's next? And we allow fear to control us when we don't have a leader. And so, the people aren't sure what to do And God raises up a series of judges. Over a 300-year period, Israel goes through this same cycle over and over and over. They follow God. They begin to look to other things, idols, whatever. They turn away. They They get conquered. They feel trapped and stuck. And somebody amongst them says, we should call out to God again. They're freed, and they have a new leader. And it repeats itself. And you go, well, why don't they learn from history? Why don't we? We do the same thing. 
How many times in your life have you had a sin that just really holds you captive and you work on it and you break it and you pray and you feel free from that and then you're walking along and things are good and you look and the same sin or something very similar now has you stuck. I have a a relative who's quit smoking. She's like the greatest at quitting smoking because I think she's quit 50, 60, 70 times. Just in my lifetime, she's quit probably 30 times. She is great at quitting smoking. She's really bad at staying quitting. She has to use a nebulizer every night to breathe. And oftentimes she uses her nebulizer either right before or right after her cigarette, her last one of the day. She oftentimes will have her last cigarette of the day, come in and sit and nebulize. How you breathing there? Just fine now. All right, good. And my mom will say out loud, I don't get it. We've told her, and like in front of her, we've told her, you got to, and I said, Mom, how many times has the doctor, I said this just the last time I was there, how many times has the doctor told you, you have got to eat better, and you and dad have got to exercise and move, and yet, you've seen literally what the damage is doing to your body, and you don't change, and she goes, well, that's different. I said, how is it different? Just, I'm not arguing, just, I don't argue with you, but explain to me, how is that different? And then she laughs and she goes, it just is. (laughs) No, because we're the same. And so we look and it's easy for us to criticize Israel and go, well, look, you did the same thing. And you went and you did this and you spun out of control and then you call out to God and God bails you out. Two things we learn from that. One, they're just like us. We do the same thing. Second thing, God is so faithful to them every time. And sometimes we sit and we go, God, where are you in this? We get ourselves into the mess. We want God to bail us out. And then we're upset that he doesn't do it fast enough or in our way or in our time. But what this shows us, this book shows us this. God is continually in contact and in community and in communication with his people. And God's grace is bigger than our sin. Over and over and over, God's grace is bigger than our sin. So the purpose of the book, I, had, I picked three things. You could probably pick 20. But the three that I came up is, we see the pattern established by God. Follow the rules and things go well. Break the rules and just the natural consequences of life will cause suffering. Never does God send suffering. If we interpret it that way, that's our interpretation. God allows their enemies to triumph over them. God allows the brokenness of the world to sometimes win. But if it was him doing it, he wouldn't relent. We have freedom from the law under Christ, but it does not set us free from the consequences of sin. Too often times, we want to live however we want to live, Because I'm free. I have grace. And where grace is, shouldn't it abound? I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Whatever was sin doesn't have to be called sin by me. I can redefine it. I can say it's a different world and a different society and it's a different time and it's a different place and all those things are true. But the reality is, he set up a pattern and he says, freedom from the law is not freedom from the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin are still there. And that's not to condemn anybody who's stuck in a pattern. It's not to condemn anybody who's stuck in a habit or an addiction or whatever. What it is, is it's to say, there's freedom from that. There's freedom from that, but that freedom only comes through me. The second purpose of this book is 
Um, it shows the headship of God. No matter what the circumstance, God was always in control. No matter how overwhelming it seems in our life, God is still there in control. The third thing we see is it really does set up for a monarchy. We read in, in the book of Kings where basically it, it literally breaks God's heart when the people decide they want a king. But God is not so foolish as to not see what's happening. Before time began, God set in motion certain things. And when he gave us free will, he knew our will would choose to reject him. And just as every time we sin, we're choosing to reject his lordship over our life, by the same token, the people, they choose to reject him and say, everybody else has a king, we want to be just like everybody else. And it shows you the stories of the judges. The judges were good people. They did right by the kingdom. They led, but it wasn't the same as having a king. And he tells them, beware of having a king. There's a, if you've ever seen the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, it's one of my favorites. It's, um, it's a very violent movie. They have a lot of battle scenes, but it's about the American Revolution. It's a fictitious movie, but there's historical real characters in it. George Washington appears and Cornwallis appears. And there's a point in the movie where they want him to join the rebellion. And he says, why would I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away. Man always wants more power. Man always wants to be in charge and be in control. And that's the problem. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. I can't tell you how many marriages and marriage counseling things I've done because the man wants to be the head. And it says here, submit. And I was like, yeah. And it also tells you to act like Christ. Show me where that is in your life. You're right. She should submit, and she probably would if you acted like Christ and were gracious and kind and always, always putting others ahead of yourself. That's what Christ would do. Yes, there is a pattern and there is a path, but submission does not mean she's under your feet. But we, as people, we want to be in control. We want to be in charge. We, it has to be my way or the highway. My house, my rules. And yet, none of that is what God would say. God would say, your house that I blessed you with under my lordship. Follow God. That's the way that's going to lead to life and lead to hope. He sets up a monarchy, not because he wants to, but the book sets it up, but because the people are continually failing to follow God and he needs a leader who's going to show them how which again, we see Saul utterly fails at that. David follows God, says he follows him with his whole heart, but he's a man who continues to sin. He murders, he commits adultery, he has multiple wives. He, I could keep going. Two of his sons leave the palace to go farm and never return to the palace. How bad of a dad did he have to be that I would rather go work in the dirt, not even in the modern era where I get a tractor, but in an era where I'm pushing oxen as opposed to spend another day with you. That's not a good dad, people. And yet, it tells us he's a man after God's own heart. Judges sets us up to understand man is going to continue to fail, but God's faithfulness is unwavering over and over and over. God bails them out of the trouble they get themselves in, and he looks and he says, and there's hope for you. You're a bunch of dirty sinners, and there's hope for you. The main theme of the book of Judges is this. The spiral of failure, sin, idolatry, it all leads to destruction. 
Hope comes through repentance and a turning from the past. Not just, okay, God, forgive me for what I've done and still doing the very same thing. There's got to be a change. There has to be a change if you want to learn and grow. God continually calls out to his people no matter what they have done, no matter where they've gone, no matter how they've sinned, no matter what idols they've set up, no matter who they've worshipped, he continues to call out and say, come back, come back. And he does the same thing with us today. It doesn't matter what we've done or what we've had or what our past is, what's been done to us. I was talking with someone one time who had been sexually abused and they were like, I believe that, I don't believe it was God's fault, but I don't believe God really loved me. And we just talked about free will and the sin of man. And I said at the end of the day, it broke God's heart that somebody sinned against you. It wasn't God's will. It breaks his heart. And God is there calling out and understand that we serve a just God. We serve a just God who's still in control. And God's calling out and saying, come back because you're still my child. And sometimes we've been so hurt by the brokenness of this world, we don't believe it. Sometimes we've been hurt by the church. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but just in your mind, how many of you in here have ever had somebody in the church say or do something that was hurtful and damaging to you? Some of you probably have like deep scars because you were told how you dressed wasn't appropriate for church. What kind of music you listened to wasn't appropriate if you were a Christian. Where you went and what you did. And I'm not talking about your parents trying to help you steer and learn and grow. I'm just talking about people in the church that have nothing to do with really raising you. I've had people tell me, you know, you should tell the teens to do this. And I always go, no, I'm not their parent. You know what I'll tell the teens? I love you and I'm glad you're here. You should tell that boy to not wear his hat. Somebody told me that one time at youth group. And I was like, no, and neither should you. And they were like, well, he shouldn't wear a hat in a building. I was like, you really want to talk about what we should and shouldn't do? <laughs> right now, guy who's in a track suit in church? <laughs> you know, we, we could have this conversation, and you're not going to like where it goes. Because I know this same guy would park in a handicapped space because he had a really nice Porsche, and it was right as the f- closest space to the front. And he was not handicapped, but he liked the close space. And that way, nobody could really park by him. And he also parked over the line to make sure the people next to him couldn't really park too close. And you're worried about him wearing a hat in the building. Really? That's where we're going with this. God looks and says, hey, don't blame me because people in the church messed up. I love you. And he probably looks and goes, yeah, they, they're a screw up. They just don't know it. God continually calls out to his people, no matter where they are. You've never done something so egregious that you're separated from God. You may do things so egregious that you end up in jail, that it costs you your marriage, it costs you your family, it costs you your job. Those things are all natural consequences of our actions sometimes. But God looks and he says, I'm still there and I'm still calling out to you and I still love you unconditionally. Judges is a reminder of that. Even though people say, well, it's all about God's wrath. No, it's all about God calling people back to him all about him calling them back and saying, you're not too far. So how does this apply to me today? The question that I ask before I preach any message. We see God working among his people. He did that then. He still does today. We're given a picture of a just God. A just God. We don't have to worry about getting revenge because he's going to avenge us. A just God has mercy on us in spite of our sin and love for us so deep 
that He calls us and He takes us in no matter what we've done. Number three, we have a hope. God will redeem. I've talked to people who go, I just don't know, my kids walked away from God and I don't know what to do. And I tell them the same thing all the time. Love them the best you can. Continue to be, continue to be a witness, a light, and an example. Pray for them daily. Don't get in their face, but give them opportunity. And, and there's a fine line. Here's opportunity. Hey, it's Christmas Eve. I'd love for you to go to church with me. Here's getting in their face. You're going to go to church this morning or I'm going to knock your block off. Okay, see the difference? <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> Subtle. But one says, hey, this matters to me. You know another thing you can do? Mean, actually make church matter and important to your life. I have people who want their kids in church who barely show up themselves, but it's really important for other people to be in church. Again, I've told you, it's not because i got to jack up our numbers or something. That's not why I want you here. I want you here because when it becomes part of our life, it permeates through us. And I, have this, I strongly have an AA model. AA's model is this. One week you're having the worst week of your life. You need to be here. The next week, you're having the greatest week of your life. We need you here. Because some weeks, you're down and you need to be fed. And other weeks, somebody on your left or your right really needs to hear from you. They need you to go, it's so good to see you. I'm praying for you. Can I pray with you? Those words speak volumes when somebody's going through something in their life, especially if you don't know what it is. Now, I'm not talking about, there's people who freak me out. They'll go, I'm going to pray for you. No, don't do that to me. And I'm used to it. I grew up in the 70s in the charismatic renewal movement. We had hippies in our church that were lived in a van. I don't know if they lived in the van, but they showed up every week in a van and they would come and they'd get in your face and pray for you. And I'm used to it and it still freaks me out, people. Let's not be freaky. But it's not freaky whether I've ever met somebody or not for me to say, can I pray with you? I told you about a month ago, I did that to a woman at Lowe's, the cashier, and she said yes. My son was with me. And it was a teaching moment, not because I want my son to walk through the hardware store and just start praying for people, but because he saw that it was just part of my life. And we left, and he goes, you live for that, don't you? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I live for the cashier who I go, how's your day going? And they say, really bad. And I say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What's going on? And they tell me. And then I say, can I pray for you? And then she said, no, you know what? I wouldn't have felt defeated. I would have just walked out and prayed for her anyway. When she said yes, I prayed for her. I might have told you this story, but the person behind me in line looks like, oh, and they get out of the line and move their car to the other line. Like, oh, great. They didn't say anything. But you know what? Saying that carries power. I don't want us to be weird. I don't want us to overwhelm people. But the people that are here, we need to be here for one another. We need to support and encourage Judges 2, 1. I don't ever like to do a message where I don't share at least one scripture, and yet this is really about the book. It's more of a history lesson. But here's what Judges 2, 1 says. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, and this is the angel, but he's quoting God, I will never break my covenant with you. If you wonder, is God's word still real? Does he still care? Is he still present? I don't feel anything. Things aren't happening the way I want them to. 
We look back and we look at those words and it says, I will never break my covenant with you. God is telling you today, it doesn't matter what you've experienced. It doesn't matter what pain and hurt and brokenness you've seen. It doesn't matter that your your, your marriage didn't work and, and your children are rebellious and you've lost your job and you're not sure what's next. He's looking and he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And his covenant is this, that he will always redeem you. He will always invite you back. There is always a place for you in his kingdom, and he wants you, and he loves you. And he's crying out to you today, I love you, I love you, I love you. And sometimes we don't feel lovable, and we don't feel loved, and we don't feel worthy of it. And he looks and he says, I will never break my covenant with you. Circumstances change and life is hard, but I will never break my covenant with you. And those words should offer us freedom and hope. That's not a God who's looking to judge you. That is a God who's looking to free you from the past things people have done and from the past sins we've committed. So, my conclusions are this. We have too many wrong ideas. We view God as our judge who wants to punish us. But God is our judge, but he desires to show us mercy and justice. And that's different than punishment. Mercy and justice offer us hope for tomorrow. He's a just and a fair God. He is the very definition of justice. So my question for you today is this as we leave. What pattern in our lives lead to a spiral away from God's best for us? Because the people of Israel, they didn't set out to sin. They set out and they were living their everyday lives. And as they did, they kept getting farther and farther and God became less and less central. And then they realized, I'm a mess. And then one of their leaders, one of the judges would step up and say, we've got to change and we've got to call out to God. And some people would listen and some people would reject it still. And they would listen and they'd call out to God and God would hear them and God would answer their prayers and God would free them from the captivity and the bondage. Over 300 years, this pattern kept repeating. But what do I do in my life that causes me to spiral away from God's best for me? Maybe legal, maybe okay for some, maybe one of those things where you go, yeah, but this isn't that bad. But you look, and it's causing you to go a different direction. I've given up all kinds of things in my life for different periods of time. Some of you know I, I, went, uh, I, I went without meat one time for 35 days just to see. I was going to do it for a month, and then I was at a winter camp, and I'm like, I'm not breaking my meat fast with like a bologna sandwich or whatever. So it ended up being 35 days before I had meat again. And I've gone without caffeine. I I once went without shoes, but I wasn't in this climate. Um, 30 days, except for when I went into like a restaurant or someplace I had to wear them. And then I'd wear sandals. And if you know me at all, I hate sandals. I like socks. (laughs) But what is it that, it's not bad for some people, but it's something I had to give up. What is it that, hey, the Bible doesn't strictly forbid this, so I'm allowed to, but God's looking and says, I have something better for your life. How about you don't gossip for 30 days and see how that changes your life? How about you go 30 days without lying at all, even on the little things, and see how that changes your life? How about you go 30 days where you genuinely self-sacrifice? You get up and you... Turn on the heater in the morning, let the dogs out and make the coffee for 30 days and see how that affects your marriage. How about 30 days of no criticizing your kids, only complimenting them? Doesn't mean you don't direct and parent, but no criticism of them. 
Just 30 days of nothing but compliments on what they are and who they are. Why don't we look at what can I do right now in my life to draw me closer to who God created me to be? Because that's what he's trying to do in each of us. Father God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for every person that's here. God, I thank you that they ventured out so that we could gather together, so that we could be together. I thank you for the beauty of that. I thank you, Father God, that you have a plan and a purpose for everyone in our congregation. And God, you don't look at us and judge us. You look at us and tell us, I offer you hope and I offer you freedom. You're calling out to us to say, there's more. There's more. God, may we reflect you in everything we say and everything we do and everywhere we go. In your name, amen. Thanks for coming today. Hope you get a chance to grab a snack and say hello to somebody on your way out. Have a great week. See you next week.